Hello, I'm Amy, Joint Artistic Director and Co-Founder of Human Story Theatre. Last month, we released our play, Happy Even After, written by Gay Poole, as an audio play on our podcast feed. Originally, we were due to be touring the play again right now, but the outbreak of COVID-19 changed our plans. Happy Even After tells the story of two couples who walk up the aisle on the same fateful day. Policeman and Joker Peter and Practical Kate, who find love second time around, and Naomi and Ash, younger and ambitious. Expected happy ever after promises of love and honour are soon forgotten as domestic abuse enters their lives. special podcast episode, along with Gay, my fellow artistic director at Human Story Theatre, we're exploring the real-life experiences of domestic abuse. Shortly, we'll join Gay, who was talking to Laura, not her real name, about her own experience of domestic abuse. Before we hear from Laura, though, it's important to know a bit more about domestic abuse and the statistics around it. Here's Michelle Plasted Kerr, of reducing the risk of domestic abuse, a national charity based in Oxfordshire. So domestic abuse is, um, I think sometimes people think, um, and particularly in lockdown, that it's this, this kind of one-off explosion. Um, what domestic abuse is, is basically a pattern of behaviours. So that can be physical, psychological, it could be emotional, uh, sexual. Um, and all these kind of different behaviours that a perpetrator will use is all about gaining control over that person um, and their family. And so they will use specific tactics to uh, gain that power and control. And one that as we talk about quite a lot in the last few years, which is coercive control, which is those small behaviours that we say are little behaviours, but actually that accumulation is incredibly dangerous for people because the, the person who wants that control will do anything to gain and keep that control. I should say it can happen in partnerships, but it can also happen within uh, families. So it could be a son uh, uh, perpetrating on their mother or, uh, you know, brother and sister. So it isn't just intimate um, personal relationships. It can be familiar as well. And again, it crosses against every social economic uh, background, ethnic minority, any sexuality and again, gender. Um, so it really can affect anyone. It really doesn't matter whether you live in a uh, a big mansion um, and, and, you know, your children go to private school or you live um, in a small village somewhere or even a housing estate. It really doesn't matter what your background is. It can affect anybody. According to the Crime Survey for England and Wales, a total of 2.4 million adults experienced domestic abuse in the 12 months prior to March 2019. Michelle says that while this number is high, it's good that so many reports are being made. In any other crime, you want to see a decrease in, in it happening. Uh, the thing about domestic abuse is we want to get people on the radar because we need to know and be able to support them the best that we can. And if someone's disclosed something, then we can start to, to work with that person to make them safe. 
One of the reasons Gay wrote Happy Even After was to put the topic at the forefront of public awareness. As Michelle says, while high numbers of domestic abuse aren't good, the fact they're being reported is. Of course, one of the great misconceptions is that people suffering from domestic abuse can just leave. Heather Walls works for A2 Dominion, a regional housing association with a social purpose, delivering specialist domestic abuse services in the southeast. She explains why it isn't as easy as just leaving. Well, it's not as simple as just leaving. An ab- it, to leave an abusive relationship is very complex. As we've already discussed, the trauma bonding is a survival mechanism and the captive or the victim are rendered vulnerable and receptive to those controlling behaviours and they're very effective. The victim may be financially and emotionally codependent and they may still love the abuser and have confusing and conflicting thoughts. There may be little or no support for the victim and they may stay as they feel they have no other options. We'd also need to consider our identity, our place in our community and the pressure and expectations of others considering social norms, family values and belief systems that have a tight hold on decision making. In terms of honour-based violence, a victim potentially has more than one perpetrator to consider and strong family links. Immigration status and income can also exacerbate the situation and the victim may have little or no option but to remain with their abuser. Later, we'll hear advice from Michelle and Heather for anyone who may be experiencing domestic abuse right now. But first, we're going to hear from Laura. What you're about to hear is a real-life account of one woman's experience of domestic abuse, which you may find upsetting. Laura is not her real name, and we've also disguised her voice. Here she is, talking to Gay. Because of my Christian upbringing, which made me think that you marry for better or for worse, richer and poorer, and sickness and health, and I had a mentally ill husband as well, that um, that's my um, bed, lie on it. Um, I think that's one of the things that we teach wrong at teach in society that you get married and that's it. It's very important to realise that a relationship has to be wholesome. And if we teach our children that I'm sure that will make a lot of difference in their lives that to look for wholesomeness and if there is no wholesomeness to move on. Now that sounds very easy if you're in a domestic abuse relationship, but I think we think we're in that situation and we can't get out. Um, In fact, I developed Stockholm Syndrome, which you can look up, where I would do anything to protect my perpetrator. But I've come on here today to say that it doesn't have to be this way. And even after 20 years, I walked away. I walked away primarily for my children. That's not why what I thought I was going to walk away, but that's the reason I walked away. I went with my children, but I was trying to be a really good mother, um, juggling life, pretending everything was quite normal. And I'd go to ballet and to cups and to football lessons, and I always put on a bright face, but nobody knew what was underneath. So I'd come back 
and be a different person from the person everybody else saw outside. So I thought that was the way to go and to keep going, to get my children through life, doing their clubs, going through their exams. In fact, there's no way I was going to take them away and move to a refuge or, or another part of the country because of exams. Um, I think that's my upbringing. But I don't think... I did stay past our exams and I regret doing that. They did well. But I was shocked one day when a teacher at school said to me, if you do not do something about this, your 16-year-old is going to run away tomorrow. And they still have PTSD. All the things that were not normal in the house, the coercive control, the financial control, psychological control, and latterly violence. In fact, I'd rather have been hit every time than all the other stuff that went on before. All those things are not normal in a house, and I made them just part of our life. And my children learned that was normal. And the PTSD they suffer now is the biggest regret I have in my life. May I ask how old are your children now, Laura? In their 20s and teenagers. You've already told us so much um, about the enormity of your situation. Can I just take you back to life before the domestic abuse started? I came from a very big family. I'm one of six. And um, I was the only girl. I was the eldest and I had a sense of responsibility installed in me. And I didn't ever really express myself. But I thought that was a norm. And I came from a very Christian family. Um, I think if you have a religion, that's really important for you. But it can cloud your judgment. And it was quite controlling, though I didn't realise it until now. But I didn't know any different. So I moved from one not being express myself situation to getting married very young and learning that I shouldn't express myself. Thank you. Um, And leading on from this obedience, I'd like to explore that a little bit more, if that's okay. And I'm going to ask you quite a difficult question, but one I know listeners will be really interested to know. Um, And that's whether, in your opinion, is there a particular upbringing, background or personality type that people, the perpetrators or victims of, of domestic abuse might share? Or is that just too simplistic? It's difficult. I do think that I'm a very caring person and um, come from quite a strict background. So in both those situations, I wouldn't... I, I still don't do confrontation. I'll do anything to avoid confrontation, whether it was a, as a child, in my marriage, or even now, I will. I cannot do confrontation. Um, I'm learning resilience courses, but it's taken a long time to say no. I won't say no. Um, I wanted to move and tell you something a bit about how I describe life as a domestic abuse victim. I don't like that word, but it's true. It's a bit like the game whack-a-mole. 
um, some children's game when you have to make sure the mold doesn't come out of the hole. But I, 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 I attribute this to three reasons. Juggling life, pretending it's normal. Pushing the mold back again, just keeping going, just trying to keep going on, going from pillar to post. Keeping up with the put downs and the critiques of the perpetrator. So you deal with one at a time and another one comes up and you try and smooth it over. It's always smoothing it over. So, and the third thing, which is really important, and it brings me on to another subject, is every time you manage to hit a mole, or whack a mole, it's a better word, it's like grabbing a crumb of, um, what's the word? Satisfaction or satisfaction? Praise. I think I was desperate for any glimmer of praise and recognition. So every time I was the good cop, and did something right, I'd get a crumb. It's the most exciting thing to be told I was right or pretty or did a good job or something. Admittedly, in the next hour, something else would go wrong and then I'd be the bad person again. But I'd do anything to whack that mole and get that crumb. Um, actually, this is a really big thing. Life as an abused person is like being Dobby the house elf of Harry Potter. Uh, J.K. Rowling wrote that book, having had quite a difficult life, I think, herself. But Dobby, the house elf, epitomises being in a domestic abuse situation. If you're listening to this, it might make you cry, if you understand that. And any crumb of, yes, master, I've done a good job, is what it's life like. So right. people might think, well, you just put up with all the rubbish. No, you're desperate for a crumb. The crumb has become very important, as well as the control you have. Control is very important. Um, you think you're being controlled, but the only way you survive is control and hypervigilance. So like Dobby, the house elf, you were giving, giving until there was nothing left. Can I ask, at what point did that switch happen then for you, knowing that that this couldn't go on anymore? My health was deteriorating rapidly. But by that time, I didn't actually care. I used to go to bed and think, please just let me die tonight. You know, I can't tell you. Um, but I was quite happy to die because it was better than what I was living with. But the school, if I'm so non, that's me being selfish, but on... My children actually, somebody telling me, somebody in, somebody else observing and saying my child would run away was the most shocking thing. And a police officer. I have been to the police quite a few times, but would never divulge anything. Because once you divulge anything, they have to act. So I'd skirt around the truth, trying to get help, but not trying to get help, because that would affect the control I had in my life. So I don't want somebody coming in. I was terrified of taking them taking my children away. They won't take your children away. I promise you that they won't take your children away. But that's why I never acted for 20 years. Um, really important that they won't take your children away. But I wasn't going to tell anybody anything. 
because also if you tell somebody it can actually make your risk you you think it's going to make your risk worse but now perpetrators can be removed from the house for a certain time so you have your time to get your act together um but it was a police officer that said please tell me we know this is going on we have reports from all your friends please tell me what is the worst that could happen um and because I was dealing with mental illness, as well as narcissistic behaviour and domestic abuse from my perpetrator, um, I my worst thing was that my perpetrator would kill himself because he had suicidal tendencies from also a very difficult upbringing, which is why don't let it don't let difficult upbringings perpetuate. I feel very, very, I still feel very sorry for him. But he had a difficult upbringing, so he regularly, narcissistically, tried to um, commit suicide. So my reason was, I can't tell you the truth because the worst thing will happen is my um, husband will kill himself. And the police turned around to me, and I still get the shivers saying this, and said, no. You'll kill him. And I went, no, I'm really, really caring. You know, I wouldn't do that. There's no way. But the more you're pushed, and I can see this, honestly now, that when you're goaded and goaded and goaded, like a dog, to react, and you don't react because you have a calm disposition and you're trying to keep everything together, juggling, whacking them all, you won't react you will react and I might have killed him and then my children who I was trying to protect would have nobody in the world because I would be in prison because even if I got manslaughter I would still be in prison so really important you don't know what you're capable of or haven't done <laughs> but that was the most shocking bit of advice that I ever been given and it was the truth and it hurt I remember that as one of the most many powerful parts of your story, Laura, and, and how sad it is that it had to come to that. I'd like to move on uh, now to that hard-earned getting away. Um, as many listeners may still be stuck at that point. Um, so can I ask you, what lessons can you share regards that emerging, if you like? It was really difficult, and if it wasn't for my friends and the support I got from the services that I used, I would have gone back. It's so much easier to go back because I had the financial stability. I had no money, no job, nothing to feed my children. I learned to make food out of nothing. Um, there's a... Um, not a very good cookbooks. I can't quite remember the title now. Called a girl named Jack, which basically I made food for a lot of us for thirty pounds a week. I started my days with a routine. The routine literally wasn't to get up and feed my children. It was to get up and open the open the back door. There's no way I'd open the front door. Um, in fact, I didn't go to the supermarket for three months because I was too scared to go down the road. 
routine. And if nothing else, if you breathe, breathing is very important. Most victims of domestic abuse have never breathed. I realized that recently. We don't breathe. We, I still don't breathe. Because we've got so used to being so on edge. So breathe, eat, exercise, sleep, and repeat. Breathe, eat, exercise, sleep, and repeat. And do two things that scare you every day. It might be like fill in the awful court documents or have to phone somebody up about money or something. But two things, and when you've done them, that's it for the day. And a very good friend of mine who helped me via WhatsApp said, put on sexy underwear every day and feel good about yourself. So I didn't do much apart from put my underwear on and breathe, do two things and go to bed. Um which was great. And I also kept chickens. The chickens got me out of bed in the morning. Not the children, the chickens, because they were completely powerful and didn't know where the shreddies were. But the chickens got me out of bed. I think particularly during these COVID times um, and lung capacity being all important, I think our listeners would be fascinated, as, as I was, to hear that because of this relearning to breathe if you like, it helped you emotionally and, and physically, obviously, as well. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that, please, Laura? Very important to spend a little bit of time, morning and evening, breathing in for six and breathing out for six. The routine of just, you can do it for two minutes, ten minutes. I wouldn't do any more because you might find it too difficult, but breathing in for six and out for six and that grounds you to go on for the next step i know you wanted to give some tips laura to our listeners um and i'd very much like to hear those um all the women i spoke to had wonderful help um and this coupled with all your determination um has led you to have as you said a happy even after hence the naming of this play um and i wondered if you could share with us um, what had been your greatest help, really, to, to get you to this point, um, to have your own happy even after? Evaluating myself. Thinking about realising that nobody's going to help me apart from me. I had great help from my friends. Amazing help from my friends. Consistent help. But they didn't change me underneath. I had to change my whole thought process about surviving, about making money. There was nobody to run to. It's just the butt stops for me. And accepting that I had faults was really important. But learning that I I can do this. If you've survived domestic abuse for as long as I have, You have every strategy in the world to do anything. You can be CEO of a big company. Um, You can do anything. You can talk on webinars. You can talk on podcasts like this. You can do anything. If you're strong enough and have learned strategies to survive domestic abuse, 
you can be a warrior after abuse. And it had great help from reducing the risk and also domestic abuse every step of the way. Every time I wanted it, run back. Every time I didn't want to live after abuse. You think it's all gone away, it hasn't. Every nightmare. Every, even now, I still can call them and say I'm having a bad day. All your experiences have created um, you into this amazing, indomitable woman. Um, can I ask now, what are the things that you're enjoying in your life? I'm enjoying in COVID times, if we can call it that, to be able to potter without fear of reprisal. That's the biggest thing I've learned, that I can be me. I haven't got to be do anything but potter. But I'm enjoying finding out about myself. I have enjoyed pushing myself to my extremes, doing things I choose to do, not that have been chosen for me to do. And most of all, I'm enjoying seeing my friends and family again, because I was isolated from them. And choosing when I go out and when I go out and if I decide to go to the pub, well, I can go to the pub without having a million texts telling me when I'm coming home. That was Laura speaking to Joint Artistic Director of Human Story Theatre and writer of Happy Even After, Gay Poole. If any of Laura's story has impacted you and you want to reach out to somebody for yourself or someone that you know, you'll find details of support organisations in the show notes and on our website. Laura's story brought up a whole range of questions for me, most notably her remarks about her abuser being a victim himself. Here is Michelle Plasted Kerr of Reducing the Risk once more. He is a victim, but he's a victim of his own creation because on some level he knows what he's doing. He, he would be able to intervene with his behaviour just the way, um, you know, I might get angry and I might lift my hand up but you know in exacerbation but I would never then physically touch someone um and again it's very difficult to say um but I'm sure um on some level this is not a happy person. Heather Walls of A2 Dominion has her own thoughts. This may not necessarily fit with um, what is truly happening in the relationship. And it may be that her abuser has experienced things in their lifetime that has had an effect upon their behaviour. It's important to know that you are not alone. If you have listened to this podcast and think that you might see yourself or someone you know in anything you've heard, you can reach out. There are local and national charities and organisations that can help, including the Samaritans, who you can call on 116123 from any phone. That number again is 116123. Alternatively, 
you'll find details of some of the organisations that we at Human Story Theatre have worked with while creating Happy Even After on our website, humanstorytheatre.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening. As is only right, I'll leave the last word to Laura. Goodbye. No mud, no lotus. The time came when the risk to remain a tight bud was more painful than the risk it took to bloom.